technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... AR and VR are game-changing technologies. I think we need to have a deeper investigation, both on the personal level, uh, on the company level, and then also regulatory level, about to what degree do we want to maintain engagement with the physical world, to what degree do we want to understand the importance of, of the moment, and how do we maintain meaning in our lives and how do we maintain connection with the, the people and things around us that are very important. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Augmented reality, virtual reality. Regardless of whether you're adding to or replacing someone's world, it takes more than just putting those screens in front of their eyes. It requires a whole new way of looking at creating content. It also means coming up with solutions at a time when the technology to put those screens in front of us is rapidly evolving, thanks to higher resolution panels, improved battery life, and 5G wireless. Galit Ariel told us in our first episode of Futurithmic that almost all of us will use AR every day within two years. To find out how we get there from here, we turn to Daniel Robbins, the principal user experience designer for VR and AR at HTC Creative Labs. He joins us from Seattle, Washington. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here today. As the man who's responsible for the user experience in VR at HTC, it's my argument that that experience is that much more important than the hardware itself in consumer and corporate adoption. So I guess no pressure on you. <laughs> so first I wanna qualify your uh, congratulatory statement, which is that I am part of a larger team called Creative Labs, and I am one of many uh, people, a multidisciplinary team. We are designers, developers, user researchers, program managers, producers, and other people who are all together trying to figure out this big puzzle, which is immersive technologies. Oh, come on, Dan, take credit for it. You're the guy at the top. No, I, I uh, refuse to, <laughs> to take that, uh, both formally and informally. Uh, I have a very particular role, which is that I am doing design strategy, uh, trying to help guide our future directions around augmented reality, uh, these are exploratory directions and also guiding our explorations around social VR. Tell me about the augmented reality exploration you're doing so far. What do you think the biggest thing you've learned in your time doing so? The first thing I've learned about augmented reality is that nobody really knows what they're doing yet. <laughs> that um, we don't have adjacent technologies that we can really learn from. We can make guesses about how people are using mobile phones and how that will influence augmented reality. We can make guesses about how people move through physical spaces. But really, in some sense, uh, we're flying blind on this one. So we need to take baby steps, both in terms of the actual technology, but more importantly, in terms of ethics and guidelines and how people will use these things in both uh, the physical environment when they are with other people and when they are by themselves. We discussed with uh, Galit Ariel uh, the ethical implications. What do you see as the biggest ethical implication of changing the reality we see before us? 
I see the biggest tensions around augmented reality centering on our need as human beings to be in the moment, to be connected to people around us. But at the same time, because of our humanity, we are also easily distracted and we are easily engaged by experiences that are designed to be engaging. So there's a tension there between these uh, digital experiences or hybrid experiences that really want to capture our attention, but yet we are people who have friends, who have family, who have people we interact with, and ideally we care about them and we want to give them uh, the kind of attention that they deserve. Additionally, as we move through the world, in the, the degree to which we are giving our attention to digital media, whether it's superimposed on our view in glasses or on a phone or in our ears, the degree to which we do that uh, contradicts our desire to be in the moment and notice whether it be spring coming to our town, whether it be changes in our physical environment, whether it be someone near us who needs help. Uh, so there's this tension that we need to resolve as we design these technologies. So part of my role is trying to be very sensitive to that tension uh, and embrace the positive aspects of, of both of these. It sounds like what you're telling me is not much different from what we're already experiencing with the smartphone revolution, which is my device is sitting on the dining room table while I'm eating. We're having that family moment, and then somebody interjects with a Facebook post reply or a text message or something of that effect, and, and we're compelled to reach down and grab at our little glowing rectangles. If the little glowing rectangle is mounted on our head in the form of eyeglasses or, you know, who knows, 20 years down the future embedded in our eyeballs, I suppose the point you're trying to make is we have to remain in the moment while we have all these other things bombarding us. Right. And we need to be conscious and make decisions about how much attention we want to get to that. That said, I often counsel people, certainly in the domain of phones and, and also with future devices, that it's really not a fair fight. If you think about it, we have uh, very large companies and rafts of startups and content companies spending billions and billions of dollars trying to capture our attention. Uh, and as human beings, evolution isn't caught up with that. So, it, so I hope that the main thing we can have is compassion for ourselves rather than beating ourselves up about how we are losing this fight. Instead, we should understand that ultimately we are human beings and there's only so much discipline, will, uh, and ability to, to manage our own attention. So uh, ideally, I think about this as a parent, I try to have a balance with my own kids uh, to understand that it's okay to be entertained. It's okay to want to be connected to your friends who may not be physically with you. But at the same time, just understand when you do that, there are things that you're missing. It's not about good or bad. It's just about balance and, and being intentional. So as a user experience professional, what do you see as the solution to the fracturing of our attention spans? Is it simply to give us the tools to squelch, to filter out some of those notifications like I've done with my Apple Watch? I know when my phone vibrates in my pocket, it's not that important. But if my wrist does, it is. So this may be counterintuitive, but I would argue it's less about the technology and more uh, about each personal person's a decision and journey about how they want to engage with the world. Right. And don't you then have to build a sort of a, a, a system where you can filter and check mark the things you do and do not want to be distracted by? 
Uh, the way I might state it, and again, I'm, I'm building on the shoulders of people much smarter and more experienced than myself, is essentially around a mindfulness practice. Uh, I think we all need to decide for ourselves uh, what will contribute to our own health, what will contribute to us being positive in the world. Uh, for some people, that may be being uh, engaged digitally all the time. That may be the balance they need. Uh, for others, it may uh, be gated on time or place. Uh, but it, but it really is on an individual basis. <laughs> and, and how ironic. Is that your phone going off? Do you need to get that message? Everything is fine. <laughs> so you're talking about augmented reality. Uh, HTC is primarily known at this point for virtual reality. This is very much an area of discussion about what's going to be the winning technology at the end of the day. But it strikes me that that's, that's not even the right way to approach these two types of tech. Right. Uh, people often talk about technology as a zero-sum game, which I think is a false dichotomy. Uh, when we look at most technologies, they tend to overlap in terms of adoption. Uh, we are still using many old technologies, even in our current environment. It is not that a new technology replaces an old, it's that it supplants it uh, and augments things that we already have. So I, I believe very firmly that there will be a place for VR, there will be a place for hybrid uh, pass-through AR, which is where you put cameras on the front of VR systems, and there will be AR in various permutations. And, the, and there's certainly a, a very healthy market for what you might think of as head-up displays, which are non-tracked uh, digital displays that uh, are head-mounted. Yeah, I guess you could incorporate a lot of different types of technologies under the augmented reality banner, everything from a, a pair of sunglasses you wear while cycling to uh, some sort of top-down projection display on a pool table to help you get that perfect shot. So I tend to be kind of a semantician, uh, probably more than my wife would appreciate. <laughs> so I think that the more that we dilute language, the less power it has. So I tend to be a classicist and think augmented reality is the uh, tracked information, ideally that recognizes things around it that is uh, mounted in front of one's eyes or ears. Uh, I do want to make sure that we understand not everybody has the same visual ability in the world and that there are multiple channels to communicate. Uh, and I distinguish head-up displays as those which are not tracked. It's believed that for every dollar that we would spend on virtual reality related technologies, we would probably be inclined to spend 8 to $10 on augmented related reality technology. Uh, where do you see the, the grand application for AR? Uh, I don't think there's going to be one killer app. I think it will be the same as our, our phones and even more so. So there's the obvious uh, scenarios that we've all seen, such as wayfinding, notifications, and tell me more about the things around me. Uh, I particularly am interested in uh, maybe it's a more niche experience, but something that will become more woven into our lives, which is help me remember this, help me share this moment. So as I move through the world, I am often having thoughts and observations about the world around me, and they're very fleeting. They come in and out of my mind. Maybe this device, this future device can help me uh, keep track of the things that are important to me can help me leave digital dust. You know, if I had a important a wonderful romantic interlude on a park bench somewhere i should do it the next time i'm at that bench maybe i can revisit that in some ephemeral way uh, if i am moving through an environment i should be able to understand 
how this environment has impacted other people who've been there before me. So that may, again, that may sound may, very amorphous, but this is much more about a connection to the environment that we're in that is not task oriented. Uh, most of the AR scenarios that are discussed are very task oriented, such as show me how that couch fits here, help me get to that place, tell me who the person at the party is. And I think those are great and those are fine. But I think that taking it to the next level, it will really be about augmenting our own, not just intelligence, but also emotional intelligence. Back in the early 90s, we were promised through the the Newton from Apple and the US Robotics Palm Pilot, a personal digital assistant. It sounds to me like what you're talking about is the PDA is going to be AR. I think that will be a component of it. Uh, again, depending on what, what part of your day you're in. Yes, I will agree. When it comes to storytelling, when it comes to the use of the technology, AR and VR are very different. They, they may have the word reality in them, but the way you approach these two technologies, I can imagine, must be vastly different. Yeah, definitely. And when I look around the studio that I'm in, most of the expertise that we have uh, comes from traditional places such as the, the game world, uh, some expertise from the film world, and then some from traditional app and web design. Uh, so we, as I said at the beginning of this, we are all trying to figure this out in terms of AR. Uh, the tensions that we often deal with, uh, sometimes around interface design, but sometimes really about trying to figure out what the actual scenario is. Uh, let me give you a case in point. And again, I want to, to put an asterisk on this. This is all about incubation projects. This is all about explorations. This is not about actual product work. So that said, uh, imagine a future pass-through device where you can see the real world through a virtual reality device. So it, you could call that a hybrid AR device. Uh, we get to decide as app creators, as platform creators, how much of the real world you see. And we get to decide how much of someone, say someone is walking toward you, a coworker or a family member, we get to decide how that person is represented. Uh, that's a very powerful charter that one has to work with. Uh, and, you know, with great power comes great responsibility there. Uh, think about other scenarios such as managing attention. Say you're a student in a school and you're wearing a future AR device that can not only superimpose digital information, but also block out parts of the real world. Uh, to what degree should we change your view of the real world to help you focus on your studies? Uh, there's trade-offs. And again, as long as we are intentional about it, I think in, in understanding what those trade-offs are, I'm okay with, with changing the view of the real world. How far away are we from that? Which particular instantiation are you talking about? Well, even just the last one, like my daughter is 12 going on 22, depending on who you talk to. And she is entering high school in the not too distant future. Will she enter university four years later and be in a scenario where she can slap on a, a headset of some sort and block out the world she doesn't need to see so she can focus on the lesson? Or is that something that's more 15 to 20 years down the road? So I'm going to, these are all guesses, of course, and so much of this uh, relies on there being fundamental discoveries in physics, optics, uh, less so in computer vision. I'm, I'm very confident that the computer vision piece of the puzzle is is happening very quickly, uh, but it more about how do you actually get imagery to the eye and how do you modify 
images of the real world. As you know, with traditional waveguide devices, there's only so much you can do, both in terms of field of view and occlusion and opacity. So unless we have some fundamental changes in the near future, it's going to be uh, quite a while till we have the full wraparound ability to modify your entire view of the real world. Uh, so I, I can't put a year on that, but I would, I would say it's going to be at least five years till someone has a device that they would want to wear in public that uh, fully modifies their view of the real world. It may turn out that that is a hybrid device that is actually putting, you know, that takes a camera feed, a very high resolution camera feed and modifies that. It's funny you say in public because we know when Google Glass came out, we ended up calling people glass holes because we were so concerned about the the impact on our privacy and what are you really looking at? And by the way, that's a really dorky set of headphones you're wearing there, it looks like. Uh, do, do, you, do you get a sense that consumer adoption is not just about what the technology can give to us, but also how it presents us to the world? Uh, that will have to do more with the utility function, I think, and how uh, how much it actually improves one's or one's perception of one's life, less about the the actual physical appearance of it. If you had told me twenty years ago people are going to be walking across the street looking at a, a a small rectangle, I would have been pretty dubious of that. But here mm -hmm. we are in a world where people are essentially the Walking Dead. Oh uh, yeah, and in some parts of the world, they're putting stoplight signals on the sidewalk so that people can see as they're looking down at their devices that it's time for them to cross the street. You mentioned um, a, a couple of issues that we need to overcome to get to that future. And occlusion was one of the words you used. And as I understand it, what you're referring to is um, when one object crosses in front of another. We look at Pokemon Go as a prime example of early consumer grade augmented reality, but when the little Pikachu character walks behind something, it doesn't actually physically go behind it in our field of view, and we need to figure out how to place virtual objects in a real world. Right, and that's that's there's two components to that. One is the computer vision, of course, which is being able to use SLAM and other techniques to generate an inclusion map, and that's moving along very quickly. Uh, the limiting factor there turns out less to be on the computation side and more on the sensor side. Uh, essentially, the resolution of the sensors is limiting how good of an occlusion map we can make. And then the computation and the requirements of those sensors, of course, puts a big load on heat management and batteries, a surprisingly large load. Uh, to a naive person, we might look at a phone and say, well, you know, I have cameras and they're very high resolution. I can take a picture and shoot a video, no big deal. The difference is once you put those on your face and you have them on all the time, the heat and battery requirements are, are quite tremendous and are, are easily underestimated. So again, uh, I, I have no uh, qualms about saying that the computer vision will come along quite quickly. I think the limiting factors will be the resolution of the sensors and then also fundamental physics about how do you do the actual opacity so that something can completely block out something from the real world. And there may be new techniques around you know, addressable LCD switchable panels that are layered in with a waveguide. Again, the problem is the more layers you have in that system, the more diffraction you have and the more the, the display itself is compromised. So the layers you're referring to are the kinds of things that would give us a more three-dimensional look? 
Uh, no, the layers I'm talking about are, you know, in the, in the standard waveguide, you've got different layers for, you know, RGB. And then if you add another layer that gives you opacity switching display, that again uh, is further degrading how the image is splitting when it goes from the projector through the waveguide into your eye. Yeah, I'm not even talking about um, how you might do multiple uh, planes of focus. That That's a whole another issue. Well, when we get to multiple planes of focus, I suppose we get into another type of technology that needs to advance beyond the current state of the art, and that would be eye tracking. Well, eye tracking is only one component of it, and I, I'm, I'm very confident about eye tracking coming along very quickly. I mean, you've seen announcements from HTC and other companies where eye tracking is just built in. Uh, and I, I don't want to say eye tracking is easy because it does take quite a bit of machine learning and auto calibration to get it working right. But again, I'm very confident there. Uh, the bigger issue with the, the focus and accommodation vergence conflicts is more about how do you actually change the apparent depth of a particular pixel. And there's been various techniques from, from different companies such as NVIDIA and, and Oculus where you might warp the, the physical display, whether that be solid state or some sort of membrane. Uh, and then there's other technologies where you do direct retinal imaging. The problem, of course, with direct retinal imaging is registration, that it has to be held to a very particular uh, physical configuration to the head. And that's why you see that North has this very uh, complicated uh, personalization step when you when you choose the glasses and that it's very sensitive to how they're uh, held relative to the head. We've been talking so much about augmented reality and when I, I bring up eye tracking I suppose that may be more of a, a topic for virtual reality where you're trying to put a remarkable amount of visual information in front of the eyeball but if you are rendering in 3D such a volume of information that you're going to need a remarkably powerful computer to do that. Eye tracking would allow you to render in high resolution only the areas where the eye is actually looking and everything in the periphery could be much lower resolution, therefore either reducing the computing power or increasing the ability to pump more at any given time. Yeah, and this is what's commonly referred to as foveated rendering. And there's been plenty of work happening in this area again new announcements from HTC show that this is actually a viable product so i'm i'm confident that this area will come along pretty quickly uh, what we will need to d decide is where we want the computation to happen whether it's going to be in a big brick that's under your desk whether it's going to be in a brick you wear on your belt whether it's going to be a heat generating device on the back of your head or whether we want to have uh, 5G radios that that then have low latency uh, remote computation. So there's there's various different ways of doing that. I think which strategy we end up with really depends on the application. So certainly in an industrial setting, I don't think it's a leap to think of having computation that's body-worn because people are already wearing a lot of equipment. Uh, if we would do want to have that mythical glasses in front, in front of your head that people will be comfortable wearing in public, then I think we're going to have to have a lot of uh, reliance on 5G and future standards for having remote computation. The issue there, again, is going to be heat and battery more than anything else. 5G is fascinating to me because of its potential for a whole variety of applications that I can't even 
expect we would understand at this point until we actually have it. And when it comes to 5G, I, I understand that a, a high definition video that would take four and a half minutes to download to your phone today could literally be done in 1.2 seconds. But it's not just about the bandwidth, it's about the latency, the millisecond difference between the time it leaves the tower and the time it enters the device, whatever it happens to be. In augmented and virtual reality, you need that latency to be in milliseconds for it to avoid VR, AR sickness, correct? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't even say sickness. I mean, even today when you, you know, go on your favorite channel and you see these uh, experimental videos of very AR, various AR systems, invariably what you see is imagery that is sort of jittery or swimming in relationship to the real world. And right now, as early practitioners, we sort of deal with that. And there's, there's two things happening there. One, of course, is computation, that our SLAM algorithms are only so good. Uh, and then the other is just latency issues or lag, depending on which way you want to use the nomenclature. Uh, I think that is much more interesting use of 5G than the, the off-stated sending a whole video to your, your phone in, in a second. Uh, latency becomes hypercritical not only for entertainment type applications such as making sure your your pikachu isn't uh, floating around the tree but even mission critical situations such as remote surgery or something where you need to be communicating with someone in the nuance of facial expressions and hand expressions is critical to understanding emotional impact to how people are communicating it strikes me that because so much um, number crunching needs to take place that if you could accomplish all of it in the cloud and then just beam down to a headset, the final product, that that eliminates the need for that brick attached to the body. I think it's going to be a, a hybrid solution. You may have heard the, the term edge computing, and I think that mm -hmm. will happen more and more. There will be commodity ways of doing SLAM, which is, again, that, that kind of tracking, visual tracking. Uh, there will also be edge computing for, for even doing things like object recognition. So the, the major providers will decide these are the standard corpus of objects that we need people to recognize, whether it be language or visual things, and that will all happen locally on the device. The, the remote computation will be used for social communication, will be used for communication to off-board databases, but more and more we will have to rely on edge computing just because of the latency issues. So how far down the road do you think it'll be before we have that type of technology where 5G is beaming the results of that edge computing directly to our brains? So again, I think the, the limitations are not going to be around developing the algorithms. That That is going to come along very quickly. The limitations will not particularly be around the sensors. The limitations, as I've said, will be around battery and heat management. Uh, and that's going to require some some innovations in just basic physics and material science. So I don't have a prognostication on that. I think what will happen is we will uh, be able to use things like 5G, but it will be for limited amounts of time. Uh, in other words, you'll be able to do a session and then your device will get too warm or your battery will start conking out and you'll have to, to plug in for a while. At least that will be for the, the near term. I think as we figure out lower and lower power ways of doing the computation, then we'll be able to uh, dial back on how much we're using the 5G for doing remote computation. And I'm sorry, I can't give you actual numbers and dates on these things, <laughs> but I do want to describe, I want to give the general contours of where the problem 
seems to lie. Yeah, it, it strikes me that the biggest problem and where it lies is that I'm going to spend my future going from charge station to charge station to charge station. Certainly, and there's been uh, plenty of research around remote power beaming. Uh, we have to decide how much we want to have that flying through the air and what the trade-offs <laughs> are uh, of doing that. Uh, I'm certainly amused every time I walk through the physical environment and see where people are plugging in and to what degree they are modifying the patterns of their life in order to have that, that power. Let's come a little bit uh, closer to home and, and maybe only 20 minutes into the future. HTC has done some remarkable work in virtual reality already. The HTC Vive Pro uh, has a, a resolution that blows me away compared to what I'm accustomed to with my existing gear. The screen door effect is something that comes up a lot uh, when it comes to the current generation of, of technology. That idea that because our eyeballs are so close to the physical LCD screen, we can literally see the spaces between the dots. Uh, where are we in resolving screen door effect as a limitation? So the first way I'll answer that is, uh, in some sense, it's not a technological limitation. If you think about content and what makes a compelling experience, a book, just reading text on a page, uh, really has terrible resolution in some sense, but it is completely immersive <laughs> if it's a well-written book. Mm. Uh, so what I mean in VR is if you have a very good experience with some, something like Beat Saber or a wonderful educational experience, you will not pay attention to the screen door because you are so caught up in the experience. Right. It kind of melts away after a while. Right. But there is a very big caveat or asterisk on that, which is when you, and I'm going to come back to text, if you want to read text on the display, then the resolution becomes supremely important. And we're finding that one of the limitations with doing, again, what you might call pass-through AR or hybrid AR, that's where you have cameras on your display, is that our current level of sensors, things that we might think are so great, like 4K cameras or even 8K cameras, are still not good enough to be able to hold up an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper and read 8 or 10 point text through these cameras. And that's a, that's a severe limitation. Because the, the ideal is that you should be able to put on one of these devices, again, whether it be a, a VR headset with cameras or, or future AR glasses that use cameras, you should be able to put on one of those things and hold up standard objects that you have in your environment. Think of a piece of paper, think of even your smartphone that might be next to you, and you should be able to read any of the text that's already in the environment. And we are not at that point right now. The, the cameras that you can put on these devices that we can main, manage the heat and battery are just not able up to that task at this point. That sounds like a problem that will resolve over the next two to five years. I think, again, there's going to be fundamental issues around, I, I keep coming back to this, around uh, battery and, and heat management. Uh, you, the, certainly, we can make sensors that are higher and higher resolution. I mean, you can go out today and buy a $20,000 red cinema camera that has beautiful sensors on it, but that thing has a very large battery pack and it has a huge machined aluminum case that is dissipating all of the heat. That is not something you're going to be putting on your face. So we, we, there are fundamental issues that have, that have to be solved in terms of that. Does that also apply to the other limitation that virtual reality presently has, which is field of view being limited to about 100 to 110 degrees, which makes it feel like you're wearing a ski mask? The limitation there with field of view is is less about resolution because, you know, if you look at the parts bins, uh, every year the, the, the DPI of the displays goes up and up and up. So that's not an issue. The issue is more about optics. 
you will see some some manufacturers out there in various degrees of sophistication that are trying to give you a wider field of view. But when you try on these displays, you will notice there's there are quite distracting distortions when you when you try to create that kind of optics. Uh, if you do it with pure ground glass, you can get rid of some of that. But then it is a very heavy optical uh, setup that is front of your face. So people end up using Fresnel lenses and then you get, a, again, a lot of diffraction issues and what you might think of as God rays or you have hybrid Fresnels where you're seeing multiple optical paths and humans are very sensitive to the transitions between um, one, one part of that optical path and the next part as the, the, the warping changes across the field of view. So it, again, it's not about the panels. It's not about the resolution. It's about the actual optics of how do you get that display to be wider. Yeah, you talk about the God rays. When I'm looking at a, a dark scene with white text, it almost feels like there's a glow around it. And as I move my head or move my eyes to look in different parts of that scene, those rays seem to extend beyond it, much like you know the, the sun coming down through a cloud kind of thing. If we resolve those optics, how do we go about doing that? Well, I'm not an optical scientist, so I can't really uh, to weigh in on that one. Uh, I'm excited to see what comes out of the labs on that one, but I, I don't have prognostications on the optics themselves. I'm, I apologize for that. You haven't seen anything, anything that gives you confidence that, oh yeah, we're around the corner from solving that problem too. Nope, I have not. And I go to all the trade shows and I talk to all the vendors and I've yet to see things that, that give me high confidence in terms of field of view. Again, if you have very compelling content, certainly entertainment content, we're talking VR here, pure, uh, traditional VR, mm -hmm. then the field of view becomes less important. Uh, and we certainly have lots of techniques for getting your attention so that you move your head so you're looking in a different area. Uh, AR becomes a bigger issue, uh, though we, you know, people who wear glasses all the time get used to having a limited field of view that has high visual acuity. When it comes full circle to this conversation, it sounds to me like what you're telling me is much like what we discussed at the beginning, which is storytelling plays a very big role in the success of any given technology. With VR particularly, the way we tell stories visually has to evolve dramatically compared to what we're accustomed to when we look at 2D. We sit in a movie theater, we sit in the, the family room watching TV. What's the biggest lesson you learned about storytelling in VR? I don't know if I'm going to be answering this directly, but as a, a parent with kids, and this is anecdotal of course, uh, you know, I see how my kids use technology and what, and, and of course, with the caveat of what I let them use, uh, but I also notice what they desire to use. And <clears throat> a lot of the time they desire to use, their, their desires are to use technology that is very low bar entry. In other words, they want to use something that is only capturing a smaller part of their attention so that they can continue to be engaged with their physical environment. Uh, VR, you know, I'm lucky and privileged enough to have a full setup in my house. Uh, that is something that they only want to use at very punctuated, intentional times. You know, when they have some friends over and they want to do this very particular activity for a delineated amount of time. It's job simulator, isn't it? It's job simulator. That is the one they, they spend oh, quite a bit of time doing. Yes. My, my, what is it with our children so hurry to grow up and, and, and live in a virtual 
cubicle. I don't get it. So I don't think it's anything about wanting to be grownups. I think it's about wanting to have uh, control over their environment. Ah. You know, whether it's uh, at a much younger age, kids building a tower and then knocking it over. Uh, I think we have a world, and this, this is a much broader topic, where modern kids, certainly in our our you know, North American first world environment tend to feel less empowered than you and I might've felt as when we were kids. So some of these virtual experiences, <clears throat> whether they be on a rectangle of glass or whether they be in a headset are really attempts for people to feel more control over their environment. And I suppose that applies to AR as well. Right. And uh, I certainly am very interested, sometimes worried, but often optimistic that we will find that balance between how much people are controlling the world, or at least pretending that they're controlling the world, and how much they will be able to let go and understand that in, in real life, we actually don't have control over anything. Galit Ariel tells us that within two years, almost all of us in the Western world will be using augmented reality in one way, shape, or form every single day. Do you agree? I do. Uh, I think it's going to be for the very standard scenarios that we all talk about, such as wayfinding and, you know, does that couch fit here in the spinning shoe scenario. Uh, I think for the more uh, esoteric examples that I alluded to, I think that's going to be farther along, definitely. Dan, thank you for your time and insight. You're welcome. And uh, if there's any takeaway from our conversation, I think we need to have a deeper investigation, both on the personal level, uh, on the company level, and then also regulatory level about to what degree do we want to maintain engagement with the physical world? To what degree do we want to understand the importance of, of the moment? And how do we maintain meaning in our lives? And how do we maintain connection with the, the people and things around us that are very important? Daniel Robbins is the principal UX designer at HTC Creative Labs. He joined us from Washington. Thank you very much. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.